Thanks for tuning in to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Rosenbaum. This episode is a little bit behind schedule. We took a family trip to the Southwest. We like to try to get away before the season ramps up for spring and we get really busy here with the nursery, with botanical survey work. So we planned a long drive out to Arizona and we stopped along the way in Kansas. I really wanted to interview author Professor Kelly Kincher and I figured Kansas is sort of between New Jersey and Arizona. So we made a stop in Lawrence, Kansas, excuse me, Lawrence, Kansas, where the University of Kansas is located on a cold, windy day. I think it was about 14 degrees, and there were just all those winds whipping across the prairie. I attended a graduate class of Dr. Kincher's on Arikara Ethnobotany. We shared dinner together at a local brewery. Lawrence, Kansas is a pretty cool spot. If you're passing through Kansas and you want to hang out in a nice college town with good food and interesting people, I recommend it. And I had a chance to have a conversation with Kelly Kincher. He's a professor at the University of Kansas, and he's also a plant ecologist with the Kansas Biological Survey. I know Kincher from two of his earlier books, Edible Wild Plants of the Prairie and Medicinal Wild Plants of the Prairie. He also has a more recent book, All About Echinacea, Echinacea, Herbal Medicine with a Wild History. Kelly's an unusual combination, a skilled field ecologist who's deeply interested in the cultural uses of plants, historically and in contemporary application, and his interests span ethnobotany to chemical analysis. He has a lot of really interesting papers on his university website, many of which link to free PDFs. So if you like this conversation, I encourage you to check those out as well as his books. And we talked together about Kansas prairies, what I was missing out on by being there in the middle of February, about long-lived forbs and grasses, about floristic quality assessment, and he told some interesting stories about remediation of damaged sites. We talked about relationships native peoples have had with some of the plants of the prairie, including uh, tipson, prairie turnip, as well as we talked about American plum, wild bergamot, groundnut. We discussed the early ethnobotanist Melvin Gilmore, his ideas about native people's movement of plants, and of course we talked a lot about echinacea. This episode is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants. We are offering mail order this season from our native plant nursery with many species of edible and medicinal native plant, beautiful woodland wildflowers, upland meadow species, and much more. Check us out at wildridgeplants.com for easy online ordering. So thanks again for sharing and reviewing this podcast, helping get the word out. And here's my conversation so here I am in with Kansas Dr. Kelly in Kinshaw. February, and I wish it was... June or July or August. What am I missing? Oh, well, I would get you out on the prairie. You're missing incredible diversity of plants to look at. I, uh, I've been um, 
doing a lot of work on our local prairies, trying to protect them, and have had some success with that, with conservation easements, and I actually helped found the Kansas Land Trust. And if you were here in uh, late May, early June, every year I lead a plant walk out at the Aikens Prairie. There's 220 species of plants on this 17-acre prairie, two endangered species, like eight species of milkweed, and it's just a it's just a beautiful meadow full of wildflowers. It's just just really nice. Echinacea dotting, you know, the landscape. And so then that's how I think the whole area looked like. I mean, where we're at here in, in Douglas County, Kansas, northeast Kansas, was originally 85% of the landscape was prairie. So only 15% of this area was forested. So we do have some forest, little patches of forest. So we're kind of on that edge. And as you head west from here, opened up completely so that within the next 50 to 100 miles west, you lose the trees. Driving in from the east, it looked like there's a little bit of overlap with the kind of Missouri lime, yes. limestone bluffs yes. kind of landscape, yes. which actually looked really cool. It is cool. Yes. So and those escarpments, the limestone escarpments, yeah. also help trees to survive fire. Yeah. But as you get further west, that from here west, precipitation drops all the way to the Rockies. From here east, it's about the same. We get almost 40 inches of rain here. But by the time you go 100, and, 100 miles west, and you lose almost 10 inches of rain. I saw in one of your, one of your reports that I was reviewing species like Bloodroot and Jack in the Pulpit and Dutchman's Breaches. Like, oh wow! Yeah, you know, I didn't really know that they would extend yes. into Kansas. Just barely. That's just really barely. Yeah, we have I think one location of uh, uh, Golden Seal. Oh, that's cool. One or two locations of, of ginseng. Yeah, Bloodroot's a little more common. Lots of Jack in the Pulpit. But I mean, you know, it's like we're definitely on the western western edge of most of those. We only have a little bit of Golden Seal in New Jersey, also. Eastern extent, yeah. 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 So, I, you know, I've heard that Kansas is one of the best places to come see the prairie, if not the best. It if, really is. If yeah. we were to come back sometime, what what month, what week, what day? Like, I know yeah. it's going to probably shift through the seasons. Well, but no, but prime is mid-May through June. Oh, that early? Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. Mid-May. That's mm -hmm. rough. We're really yep. busy with our nursery in mid-May and June. Of course. But that sounds awesome. But you think about all the the wildflowers that are native understory things. Prairies are full of that. Um, not the early ephemeral shed yeah. forest, but the more open. So echinacea, think about That's prime time. Oh, really? Yeah. Fall, there's some bloom, but yeah. not as much. And the grass are so big, it's hard to hard to see things. So spring, spring is just the wonderful okay. time and the weather's nice it's not too hot um, but then you should see the little gems here in the eastern part of the state that are more rich but then if you go a little further west you know national park units out in the flint hills the high plains then you get these expanses and in some years you can get carpets of flowers blanket flower galardia i mean i've seen landscapes covered with it wow. some places Unusual, that's unusual, but um, but the high plains is interesting in kind of different ways. And then rock outcrops and special features out there have rare things, that's fun. Someday. So out east when we talk about, I don't know, 
some of our higher quality communities were often talking about old growth forest or something like that. I've always wondered what the, like how do you speak about that relative to the prairie, not just on a community level, or not just like this spot is an old growth prairie, but also I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about individual species and how long they live, because we yeah. all know about oaks and tuplos yeah. and things like that, yeah. but how long does like a good tap-rooted prairie perennial live for as an individual, yeah. if you yeah. could? Decades. Yeah. Uh, we did some detailed plant population work on Echinacea angustifolia, and uh, Essentially, if you do some matrix math and if you tag plants and track them yeah. for years, you can see what stage class they move into. And so we had a population that would, old plants would average about 30, 30 years. And I found, I found some echinacea roots that I'm, I would think in that case are probably over 100 years. So wow. decades for sure. There's been a little bit of repeat photography, but that's not worked as well with mm-hmm. Forbes. Um, but I'd say many of these prairie plants are talking decades. Um, and then there's the grasses. And what's yeah. cool about grasses is that grasses actually show no signs of old age. And grasses continually grow by making new rhizomes. So it is possible in this race for who has the oldest plants. Yeah. <laughs> That the oldest plant could be some big blue stem grass in the Flint Hills of Kansas yeah. that's creeping across the landscape and has been doing that since you know the end of the last glaciation. That's just rhizomes moving across the prairies. Has there been any kind of genetics work on that, trying to look at the extent of clones or? Yes, it is just confusing. And yeah. obviously, in terms of the genetics, there's both seeding going on and rhizomes growing. But it's the rhizomes that persist. So the, the last really great drought, the 1930s, which yeah. we don't talk enough about now, and it was truly climate change derived. I mean, the plowing up of the prairies created the big great drought. It's not said enough. So, so we've affected climate clear back then. But what survived in the worst of the worst was rhizomes. Rhizomes became the longer lived seeds um, so rhizomes popped up through that great drought. There were seeds too, but it was always surprising with the grasses that, that rhizomes were kind of the first things to come back. So they weren't necessarily exhibiting above ground growth at all, but the rhizomes were persisting through this really harsh and you And you would get just pieces of rhizome. It got so bad. So it wasn't like this yeah. root mass was all alive. Yeah. No, it was like cool. one here and one over there. Um, so. So there's a lot of age here. And then the other thing we know that, that kind of relates to that too, and I know you have interest in restoration, but it shouldn't be surprising that restoration takes decades, if not longer. Yeah. And so people can see that if you cut down a forest, how long is it gonna to take to get the forest back? Well, of course you immediately think, well, yeah, decades. But when people think about prairies, they think, well, I've, you know, I've grown little blue stem, or I've grown this grass, and after three, four years, it's the height of a mature one, but the difficulty is getting the diversity back, and that's what takes decades, if at all. I mean, I'm, uh, somebody here in class today asked me what my favorite thing I'd written, um, and I don't even know what that is, but I wrote a paper about prairie restoration in which uh, I ended that to get back the full diversity is gonna take decades or centuries, if at all. 
And I do think there is that, yeah. if at all, because there's good reasons to believe that we won't get back some species because if you look at our, you know, in Kansas, there's four locations left, maybe three now, of the prairie fringe orchid. You know, it's not going to get to a restoration site that you might start. I mean, it's just inconceivable, even if we had complete hands-off. So in terms of total diversity, we, we don't even and we don't even know how to propagate that species. I mean, orchids are tough, and maybe you can scatter some seeds, but you have to have this fungi that's special for the orchid, and, and we don't know how all that survives. So we probably can't put back all the pieces, but even to put back most of the pieces. And of course, when people think about forest and restoration, maybe they don't even think as far. We, we get pretty happy with restorations when we get the original structure back. We feel pretty good about prairie restoration when we get the matrix of grasses with several min or many wildflowers. Yeah. We feel that's really good, but that's not really the ecosystem. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you what some of the restoration issues are here, and I also want to ask you about a floristic quality assessment. <laughs> and since I don't have that much time, can we bundle those together yes. and talk yes. about you know how you're looking at intact or relatively intact communities, how you're measuring that, and also how you're looking at restorations and assessing them for success. And then what are some of the big things, big impediments, or big processes yeah. that are absent that are really hard to notch back in? So I'm real keen on the floristic quality assessment, which you know about that, but essentially... Yeah, if you want to summarize that. Yeah, but essentially every species uh, has been judged by a panel of botanical experts as to how much affinity it has for its original community. So within prairies, you know, those species that are only found in prairies, only found in really good prairies, get scores of 10, and weedy annuals that are everywhere, prairies and elsewhere ragweeds and annual sunflower get zeros or ones and things come out in between and essentially you average all the numbers of species in a location and get some score. So we've been doing uh, a lot of inventory work um, particularly looking for our last remnant prairies and trying to map those and in doing that we've almost always score them with the floristic quality index. Now we may do that on a whole field scale but if I'm doing more detailed work, I really want to do it on a plot scale. And to capture the diversity, I like using large plots, like 20 by 20 meters. Wow. So we've done projects where <clears throat> you will go find these remnants of various types of land use and put in three plots at one site, average that in terms yeah. of floristic quality, and then compare that to other locations. We've used that in restoration and even going a little further even in remediation projects. Uh, for example, I uh, did work on a terribly abused landscape that was mined for uh, lead and zinc in southeast Kansas into Oklahoma, Missouri. It's a 100 square mile Superfund site, wow. just to show you the extent of that. It was um, the place where lead was mined for bullets for the, for the uh, uh, great war between the states and it continued to be mined for lead and zinc until the 1950s and it was so extensive and it was underground by about 50 to 100 feet that at one point in time there were so many rails and trails in tunnels underground that you could 
it was possible to walk from Oklahoma through the corner of Kansas into Missouri underground. There were, there were uh, burrows that were mules who were lowered into the tunnels and lived their entire life pulling car, rail cars, stuff like that. So a huge area, horribly damaged. No settlement over damage, water quality issues, lead affecting people's IQ, um, needed to be cleaned up. I was uh, hired by the state and the feds to use fluoristic quality assessment to look at damage. So we essentially started doing all this stuff across the landscape, looking at some of the best prairies down there as our model for what was original and then looking at these other lands. I mean, we had places that were so hot with heavy metals. That, I mean, there was no vegetation. I mean, there were, and there were chat piles, which is just mining waste that were just rock, grit. So I went from that to really fine stuff, and we used this scale of damage um, by using the fluoristic quality index. Superimposed upon that, of course, you had other agricultural uses um, but where there was just mining, yeah. we could look at that impact the landscape, and that was used to look at to help quantify the amount of damage over that area, which was extensive. Were any plants doing really well? In there this were a toxic few things. Environment? Yeah, there yeah, were. Was it that? was kind of curious. Annuals seemed to do well because they could, you know, uh, there are certain times of the year with the right weather conditions that the heavy metals will kill plants. And it's it's kind of like when they're struggling, right? then it can be just too much. But there are also some other plants, um, including uh, penstemon. Um, which one? Uh, one, of the, one of the penstemons. For oh. some reason, it was, just, was right there with the annuals. Wow. So there was even some stuff that was like, I wouldn't have guessed that had some ability to deal with that. So, you know, and, and so then people started thinking about, okay, so maybe these plants can help clean up these sites. And there is some potential for that, especially on things that are somewhat damaged. But on stuff that's truly damaged, it, it's just too much. So um, we can revegetate these areas, but in several cases, the recognition was you're going to have to cover these areas with, with clay and a little bit of soil. Then you can grow on top of that. The edges you can work and, and bring back. So we've used fluoristic quality on some of the really tough areas, and then we've used it to compare restoration sites. And that's where I get to the saying that really it's a tough road to hoe because when you start looking at fluoristic quality on restored areas, it is always significantly lower than anything native. Um, just, just those difficult to establish yeah. species. What do you think are some of the missing puzzle pieces that we just either haven't figured out how to do or we just can't do because of scale or time or... So repeatedly in restoration work here, and there's a good restoration network locally that um, several people go out and collect seeds in the fall, like are collecting seeds. Um, but we had difficulties with early spring ephemerals because for, for obvious reasons, you don't get people collecting seed in May and June, and you don't get people out on their hands and knees collecting violets and yellow star grass and um, species that flower early and disappear. Yeah. So, and then you can't... They do disappear. They just get overtopped and, and you can't find a seed. They go dormant so. by... I mean, I love it. You know, one of the grasses out here is called panic grass. They're like, they're in a panic to make seed <laughs> and get out of the way. Um, <laughs> so those things have been real hard. And then 
related to floristic quality. There's just a whole suite of uh, species that usually are longer lived, that don't make lots of seed, and don't easily establish. Yeah. And if you're longer lived species, you don't need to have the mechanisms to have lots and lots of propagules. So th those have been hard too. Any, how about a couple examples of those? Yeah, um, well, uh, rattlesnake master. Mm, it's yeah. a good one. Um, uh, one of our endangered species means milkweed would be one of the worst that way. Um, other milkweeds too. Um, we have a narrow leaf milkweed that's pretty common, but uh, uh, let me think. They have a hairy milkweed that's very rare, uncommon. Um, prairie phlox, beautiful plant. It's really tall, upright phlox, just difficult to reestablish. Lead plant, one of those classic prairie plants. Maybe one of the deepest rooted, has roots that go down 12, 14 feet deep, been measured. Um, tough as nails, called prairie shoestrings because when they plowed prairies, the roots would pop like you and you're breaking your shoestrings. Um, Hard to establish. There's a lot of yeah, growing some of these species, not necessarily overlapping with the ones that you just mentioned, but some species are so hard to propagate and grow in the nursery. And then when I see a large concentration of them in some wild place, it just makes me wonder: like, how did these get here? How long have they been here? How did this huge population establish? What conditions did it establish under when it's so yes. challenging? Yes. And yes. Uh, you know, I just find that endlessly fascinating. I don't have anywhere to take that, but it's well, just, yeah, I yeah. know I share that too. And it's also interesting too that a lot of times we can grow something from seed, and and grow quite a few plants, yeah. and yet we don't see them reproducing the same way. Yes. you know. And I've been particularly fascinated by, well, I have a native prairie block, and even at our university research station, and the tracks next to that. Even if they're no longer managed in another way, let's say they're just left there, but maybe burned along with the prairie, kept open. Species don't cross yes. over easily at all. Over time, a few, but just so difficult. I do have colleagues here, though, that are you know, studying mycorrhizae, and there's definitely a lot being published now that you know areas that were farmed lose lots of these valuable fungi. We know the soils end up different. I mean, boy, you can just see sometimes the native prairie, and then you step down two feet to where the crop field is or was. So you've lost topsoil. I mean, all these, all these yeah. things are changes that make it much, much harder. Well, I want to dig into that same question, maybe from just a slightly different angle. What is disturbance anyway? You know, we always talk about disturbance relative mm -hmm. to plants. But, you know, what is disturbance? Why do some plants really like it? Others are very averse. And I mean, what's really the difference between a thin soil on a limestone bluff and like, you know, a thin graded soil at the edge of a concrete parking lot or something? Why would you find two completely different plant I mean, it's kind of, kind of similar, right? It is, although I, I do think it goes back to those other organisms. And there's something about stability that happens in kind of a natural context. But to dig in a little deeper, you're absolutely correct that, that there are plants that thrive on disturbance. And even some, even our rare species need some disturbance for seedlings to establish. The thing we see in prairies 
that if you get a, a nice stand of native grass, your chances of getting other plants, other wildflowers that have been greatly diminished because the competition of those grasses is just so intense. So there's people who talk about adding disturbance to that mm -hmm. prairie to get little niches yeah. for species to establish. I mentioned uh, in my class about yeah. the prairie turnip and that it's now rare because people don't eat it. That means they don't dig it. But when they dug it up to eat it, they killed the plant, but it produced a lot of seed and they are creating disturbances. So people had, native people had their prairie turnip patches. In fact, uh, Melvin Gilmore wrote about the Omaha again, that the throughout of the summer buffalo hunt was determined by where the women could go find prairie turnips and chuck cherries. Nice. So they returned to sites. They returned to their, as I would call it, prairie turnip gardens. And, you know, chuck cherries like certain habitats. Maybe they're at the outer course of the stream, you know, where there's a tree edge or maybe a little bit of edge of a canyon. <clears throat> so they have places they return to. The prairie turnip patches, they created disturbance. And I think, you know, a lot of things, you know, the work of Kat Anderson in California. Kat was here years ago, did a postdoc here at KU, and, and we talked a lot about this, but I think a lot of prairie plants benefited by being harvested. Most bulbs, you know, that were food, and a lot of bulbs around here were used as food. We have a camas, a prairie camas, that from southern Kansas south into Texas, there are actually, they're finding pits where there was pit roasting that had gone on. It ended like 2,000 years ago. So it was like before that. And they have found some plant materials that included camas and bulbs that were baked in those. So that pit baking thing of harvesting bulbs did happen in the southern plains. And you know, when you harvest bulbs, usually if you're smart about this, you're either encouraging bulbs to spread or you're scattering yeah. seed. So we do know those little disturbances um, are essential. Um, but the big disturbances are too much. That's, so you have, we have Santa Fe and Oregon trail ruts here in Kansas. We can have great prairie down in and through those ruts. If, if the areas adjacent to them were nice prairie. So you could have several feet of soil removed and have nice prairie through there today. So you can recover from that small disturbance. But I've not seen anything bigger than that, bigger than that several feet, feet wide, that seemed like it can just rest restore itself. So is it partially a factor of dispersal distance of the plants and also whatever their associated soil biome is where I, they can yes. fill in small patches but you have an entire disturbed landscape that's adjacent and it's just it's too much or too there's much, too something far. competing in there yes. that just can't and then we haven't adequately studied so agricultural production <clears throat> you use herbicides pesticides yeah. you, you know even fertilizer in some ways I grow more and more to realize that just fertilizer is kind of the those things out of whack because it encourages the wrong things, right? And most of our prairie species yeah, are adapted. Right. So you have, but you have that chemical ons, onslaught that leaves a legacy. Those things, they don't all disappear. And once you enrich something with nutrient, I mean, that just doesn't disappear quickly. Most of it does, I mean, but you have a legacy of all that. Yeah. 
So you made me think of something more on, on really this restoration diversity kind of nexus. We've recognized that um, there's a need for habitat, and habitat doesn't always have to be pristine. In fact, my uh, colleagues who study animals and birds, especially birds, always talk to me like, it's not about species, it's about structure. You know, get over it. They need structure, right? right? And, and many birds do. They don't really care which species of grass or which forbs or stems they need to make a nest. And, and they may care some, but not, they don't care as much as maybe I do. Um, so we recognize, after doing some floristic quality, that we tend to like dismiss wasted sites and then hone in on the really fine sites. But then we realize the stuff that's in between is providing immense value. And in terms of restoration, what you really want to do is restore those sites in between. Yeah. We need to protect the pristine sites. We're not doing enough of that. But we need those sites in between because that's where the opportunity is to really do restoration. And actually, what we, if we start with a crop field, I mean, that's really reclamation or recreation. It's not restoration. Restoration is taking something that's damaged and bringing it back rather than why should we expect if you take what was a cornfield 10 years ago that you're going to restore it? I mean, it's been so badly damaged yeah. that the best we can do is create some sort of facsimile of what would have been there. But a piece of pasture that's been maybe overgrazed or had some other problems, it still has maybe all those soil features, probably has a few species still that are really good, and you can encourage that. And there's where, there's where the opportunity is at. I'm going to ask you a real clunky, cumbersome question um, and hope for the best. Sometimes as restorationists, we express our restoration target or goal sort of as, you know, this is what would have been here, like you just said, or, you know, this is uh, our best imagination of what the historical condition would have been or something like that. And I'm, I'm totally there in that camp. And then again, I also fidget uncomfortably there because I'm aware that one, for one thing, some people just look at that as very critically, like you can't go back or, you know, this sort of linear notion is problematic in a bunch of ways. And also conditions have changed and all that. So what are your thoughts on how can we express our restoration targets in a way that is sensitive towards this idea that some of what the past may have been we don't know and there's many different pasts and there's processes that might not have happened anymore but at the same kind of, kind of value this idea that something really significant happened here and we're we're working on it there's many many things there um so i don't want to start uh let me start with this so kind of like i have lots of friends at garden and, you know, you start talking about gardeners. And then we all have similar experiences and certain things. And then there's always a subset of things that's like, you know, I can't grow that plant. And you oh, do yeah. great with it, right? Yep. And we can talk a lot about that. And I may not be able to figure out why that is. That you just... And we see that in nature. I, even though I'm, I'm fascinated by plant distributions, both the, the global scale of a plant that stretches from Texas to North Dakota... Or the local scale. Why is that plant here? I would expect on that ridge to also find it. Yeah. And it's not there. And yet then I went over there and, well, that's a wetter site. It shouldn't be, but it is. There it is. We don't understand all that. Um, we just need to create situations where we can get all that diversity back. We don't have a clear view of the history. 
we have glimpses into the past history. I assume it was very rich, and that's based on little glimpses and historical notes, and yet people didn't really record, and there's not... So we're guessing on what was here before. So it's kind of like the gardener's experience. We want to we want to do a bunch of things because there's not it can't be a goal. I don't think that works. I think we know so little that we don't know what what is even what the changes we've done since things were pristine are or where we could go. And with that. I'm not a big fan of assisted migration. I'm not a big fan of, some people around here are talking about, well, you know, it's getting hotter, so maybe we should uh, do restorations that would be similar to what's 200 miles south of here. And of course, my response is, I don't want Oklahoma and Kansas. You know, but it's not that entirely. It's I like, mean, I, I'm really with you. I feel like these plants have a lot of plasticity. They've moved, at least in our, you know, I don't know much about this area, but in our area, in response to glaciation, they were all over the map, and they tolerate a lot of conditions. And who am I to guess what, yeah. you know, that I want to bring yeah. bald cypress further up into New Jersey? Right. I mean, I don't right. know. Right. Yeah, so I, I think in some ways the best is we should stay to something that's local, local to regional, and we should just keep working with that and not get, not project. You know, as I mentioned before, the 1930s were horrific drought. And that was a part of climate change, human-induced climate change. We've not been that dry or hot since. Our record temperatures are still 1936 here. I mean, that's... Oh, wow. We haven't, we haven't gotten back to that oh, yet. Wow. Um, so it just shows you that in this range of the hottest ever, the... We're not there yet compared to the 30s. I don't want to go there. We probably will go there. But what we have is what's been through that. And then what I find curious, even in Kansas, which, uh, you know, half the state is in crop production. I mean, the majority of this, the soils here are fabulous. And, you know, we, it's not clear that we have any species that have gone extinct in Kansas, any plant species. So that means that even though we messed stuff up bad, and we have some things that are really rare to where we can count the number of locations left, the climate has not made that impossible. And I know for a fact that in terms of people more involved in horticulture than I am, you know, we're still not able to grow figs here. We're not growing pomegranates. We're not growing these things that are south of us. We're still getting that cold. Like today, what, got down to three or four last night, you know, and they're going to say six tonight. Um, We're still getting those cold snaps, and the the climate projections, uh, you know, predict more chaos. So they're not predicting a warming of the coldest temperatures. So I don't think plants from further south will necessarily do better here. I think they would be affected by that. And I think that the genetics of what you have local has that kind of broadest bandwidth for change. So you kind of need to work with that. And if the climate is changing, of course the climate's always changing. Hopefully, hopefully it's selecting in the right ways. So one of the missing pieces is Native American presence. And I'm saying that because I want to segue into some of your <laughs> ethnobotanical work. And we could go so many different ways on that. Um, but I guess one of the things that I wanted to do is, 
ask you about, I was going to ask you about Prairie Turnip, about Tipson, but you kind of scooped me on it. <laughs> um, but uh, as you might have gotten from my interview with Danielle Shevitz, I'm really interested in this life way where we're not necessarily having an agricultural relationship with some of the wild plant species, but there is this really reciprocal relationship. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's any other species that come to mind that embody that, that are in this region. And also, I figured I'd just prompt you with a couple of species that I don't think I'll have a time to ask you individually about each one, but if any of them come to mind, they're just either plants that I'm yeah. enamored of. Yeah. or So some of the ones that I just jotted down are chokeberries. And my question, one of them is, have you ever heard a better name for chokeberry? Because we're trying to sell this in the nursery. And yeah. I'm sorry, chokecherry. Yeah. That's another problem. Yeah, the yeah, choke, yeah. Which choke, is, b- 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 yeah, berry, yeah, yeah. chokecherry yeah, yeah. thing. Um, Minarda fistulosa, which I just love that plant. And um, native plums. I remember in your mm-hmm. in your edible mm-hmm. plants mm-hmm. of the prairie book, you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about plums and harvest and so on. Mm-hmm. So this is like a 12-part question, but yes. I'm curious about all the species. I'm curious about how you would even just talk in a general way about that Native American reciprocal relationship with some of these wild plant species. And also something that I think Melvin Gilmore started digging into, and you definitely talk about in your books too, but what is the potential to reintegrate some of these wild plant species into our life ways now, either as foods or medicines, and how that all relates to your life work? So, I don't know. (laughs) Good, there's lots of threads there. Yeah. Um, I will re-prompt you on some yes, of those, but yes. it just came out as a big bundle. Oh, that's a good... Uh, chokecherry, I don't have a, another name for. Um, so I just, I just call them chokecherries, but... Um, uh, you know, they're one that for me, and a lot of things relate to childhood experiences, but I remember that there were shelter belt plantings of chokecherries in the, in the plains. And I remember a couple years we just stopped and picked huge numbers. And then when I started going up the Rosebud Reservation, the Northern Plains and other places seem to have so many more and just pick huge quantities. And then I've kind of learned from my field work that these native plants, plums being another example, just because I do a lot of field work across the plains, I'll run into large amounts. And so it's not uncommon for me to pick five or 10 pounds or something like that. Well, what do you do? I mean, you, you know, I'm not stopping to camp and, you know, don't have a bunch of people work with me. They're going to, you know, pound these yeah. or dry them. But uh, if I'm within fresh distance of getting back home, I mean, I'll toss 10 pounds of plums in my freezer, whole fruit with, you know, seeds and everything. Because now I know I can process them another part of the year, yeah. wintertime, and do well with that. So I still feel like there's this opportunity for many of us to go collect these larger uh, crops that are wild and integrate that. Um, Obviously it helps to travel and maybe that's questionable in the future in some ways, but I like to point out there's been a really long history of people in this part of the world taking those summer routes for bison hunting or going on out the Rockies for plant collecting. And a lot of those longer trips are about collecting all the way out and coming back. That's you know? a good life, right? Being it able is. to ramble through a landscape that's abundant and yes. that has different resources in different exactly. places. And I would need that big of an electric vehicle that I could have <laughs> a solar charger related to to bring back my 20 pounds of plums. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I reflect on plums because they have, again, personal meaning and 
difficulty for me. I can't, the, the plum that I like so much growing up, Prentice Americana, that we had on the farm, that's still on the farm, I have brought back to my yard and it won't produce here. Oh. It's made fruit a few times, and they get fungus. Where did you Where did you grow up? Were you nearby? I grew up here in or? southern Nebraska, okay, uh, near Guide Rock, which is a, a Pawnee sacred site, the Paher, um, and uh, that farm's still in the family. My brother and I manage it. It's small nice. and leased out, so I'm still connected to that piece of land. Um, and actually, harvested plums up there last fall in September, because <laughs> I always go visit. You know, plum time yeah. and. It was not a good year, but I still got something. For me, there's nothing that has that taste of wild plums. And my mom made wild plum jelly. And so anytime I taste wild plum yeah. jelly, that tart, that tart and sweet combo is so good. Just can't can't deny it. So I've moved these around, and you know I've read Gilmore and written about Gilmore talking about that the Pawnee when they got forced from their reservation lands in Nebraska to Oklahoma took their plums with them. They probably knew there were plums down there, but they probably didn't want those Oklahoma uh-huh. plums, you know? Yep. I mean, they wanted their plums. Yeah. And all of these different things are our ecotypes, and they taste different based on soil type and climate and place. And um, So there's been a great interest in moving these things. There's a great interest in foraging. Here you have a, a tribal group that is thinking of things we're going to take, yeah. and I'm sure they were pretty limited in what they could move. They want to make sure they had those plums yeah. down there. That ties into something else that I I feel like Melvin Gilmore is one of the first people to talk about. Although, of course, I'm ignorant of all the other people who would have been working at that time. But which is Native American dispersal of various yes. species. He was very careful to note when something seemed to have been moved through the landscape, and he really draws attention to that. So. Maybe give a couple words yes. on who Melvin Gilmore is, and then yes. if you can go into that a bit. So, you know, Melvin Gilmore really was the Plains ethnobotanist who started working in 19-teens in Nebraska and ended up working into the 1930s through North Dakota and on into Michigan, but really most workers in the Great Plains. He just had a really good eye and inquisitive nature about that, and somehow got on this idea that... that native folks move plants around and was able to document that earlier than anyone I know of and more often had many many examples of that and you know it always makes one wonder you know about locations of things but he noticed like with Acris he called it Calamus Acris Calamus but Acris Americana that it was associated with village sites and then he got on to saying that yeah the Pawnee did move it and knew to do that and he decided a whole bunch of plant material that fit that, and then it just fits for anything that's a good fruit or a good nut. Why wouldn't you move that to another habitat? Be it a pecan in a floodplain, or be it a really tasty persimmon that you'd move to maybe the edge of another campsite so that yeah. a decade or so from now there'd be persimmons when you camp there in the fall. I mean, it just makes sense. And it's also clear looking at the ethnobotany people knew plants. Most everybody in a village knew most all the plants. Some people were highly trained, but everybody knew the plants. And propagation's fairly obvious. You spend a lot of time with these plants. And so I'm sure people knew that pits sprout and you can clip this root and take that top that goes with it. And gosh, we're camping over there, you know, next week, we'll just take some. 
So I think there was a long history of that. So it affects what we consider the native distribution of plants. And Western distributions are fascinating because I think things were moved. A plant that I take great interest in and, and want to do more work with is the, the groundnut, Apios yeah. uh, Americana, and realizing what a staple food it was. I'm now doing some work with the Osage tribe, and I'm reading through their historic notes, places named after it, place where they'd go get it. Most of the floodplains apparently just had lots of it. Yeah, well, what, it, what out here, what does its habitat look like? Creek, creek edge, floodplains, um, banks, um, and uh, was so notable on creek banks, in fact. And then it was uh, noticed as great forage that got grazed out a lot of places. Um, sandy soils often, but not always, and easier to dig in sandy soils. Um, again, one of those that would respond to, uh, we're doing an interview. Oh, yeah, I'm just looking to see where. One of those would respond to harvest. Um, because the disturbance and as those strings, you wouldn't get all of them. Yes. So it's always little little beads left. And then a number of places are named after it, including Topeka, Kansas, which everyone knows right here is a good place to grow potatoes. Is how it translates. Oh, wow. Most people yeah. assume it's white potatoes, and to or do in ka is apios. So when you're out doing field work, do you find either traces that you you already knew that this was a Native American site and you see plants that you you think might have been brought there, or do you just see places that you have no context for whether it was a site or not, but gosh, what an interesting association. Like, are those hints still left in the landscape? Because it's something I've been fascinated with in Jersey, and I You know, I think there's many decades left of hopefully looking for this kind of stuff, but it's not the easiest thing to pin down. In special habitats, yes. So, and again, western edge. So, like, there's a place in Canopolis Reservoir where I've seen this apios. That's one of the western western sites of it, and it's a sandy slope area, and it's like, oh, yeah, I could see that. It's been moved here, yeah. you know, it just seems that way. Or seeing a, a walnut tree, for instance, you know, in a western distribution, you know, in a, near a spring site in west-central Oklahoma or central Kansas. You just go, I wonder, wonder about that, you know. Um, other things that pop up that way that aren't Native American but are similar is uh, here in central Kansas, uh, hops, wild hops, associated with spring sites. In fact, there's still debate on hops to what extent it's native, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and I'm convinced almost all of it's not. I think, I think genetic work will show it's not. Uh, we also see watercress in lots of streams. We know it's not native, but it also is moved. Yeah. Another one that's confusing, uh, peppermint. Uh, Western areas of peppermint here in kind of central plains. Uh, I don't think it's native but it's abundant in wet spots and clearly looks like it's planted. These are all things that people would move easily and it's been really hard to know uh, distributionally um, where things are at. I have actually not gotten funding but have made an attempt. I do think the the genetic techniques we have now, DNA, may really help us in teasing more of this apart. For instance, going back to even thinking about the Pawnee and yeah. moving their plant patrols to Oklahoma, I could now look at that. Because yeah. in that case, you've got enough of a distance that you probably could look at source genes 
for plant material in Nebraska, northeast Nebraska, where the Pawnee were, and then look at Oklahoma in that area, and then sample in larger extent in Oklahoma and seeing if, if there's some unique uh, genotype there. That sounds really cool. Wouldn't it? Actually, one that might work in the same or somewhat similar way is out by us in New Jersey, uh, formerly State and Nature Plan, I think it's become S2, is Rebus Missouriens, which basically the core of its range, I assume you have it, Missouri Gooseberry, I assume you have it out here. Yes. Yeah. And if you look at its range map, there's you know a couple little satellite populations moving east, and then just locally along sort of shaley streams in Hunterdon County, which is just south of where I live, there's populations of it, including at least one where I did field work that it was a known former Lenape village site. And it's just like, that got moved a long way because its range is basically west of the Mississippi. And wouldn't it be interesting to look at the genetics of the New Jersey yes. ones and tie that into some population that maybe it originated from? Because, I mean, how else do you have this like little... Like here, I'm trying to make something visual. It's not going to work yeah, on the yeah. podcast, but literally little, like a, a county here yeah. and a county there, just a couple of footsteps moving east. And do we know um, how old those locations are? I mean... No, we don't know how old those locations are, but, it, I mean, it's treated by, you know, natural heritage as being native in New Jersey. So it goes back to, you know... We're, assuming we're presuming it was not brought here yeah. during colonial times, for yeah. example. Yeah, that, which I don't think that there was a fast and furious trade in Missouri gooseberry during Ooh. colonial times. I could be wrong, but it's just another prickly gooseberry that tastes like the other ones that we already have that are already kind of maligned anyway. So. Well, it's very confusing to know when things happen. So I've been yeah. looking at the native range of echinaceas. Yeah. And with echinacea angustifolia, using herbarium records... There was spurious stuff. First of all, you have, you have taxonomic issues because a lot of Echinacea angustifolia historically was called Echinacea pallida, and there was confusion amongst those, including Gilmore confused them. Um, so you have that. And then people more recently moved stuff around. So I actually went out and checked some of these places, but like there was a location uh, in New Mexico near Santa Fe. And it looked like it was the intersection of interstate and a highway. Yeah. So I go out there, and it was roadside planning. I mean, it was like <laughs> there's a location for Echinacea angustifolia along railroad tracks in downtown St. Louis. No idea on that one, but it's, you know, somehow someone got seeds there. Yeah. So you have those, those sorts of things that we have to tease out of even more current distributions but could be early settler distributions that we wouldn't know. So yeah. going back to that list of things I was talking about, at least some of those are early settler, but some could be before. Something like hops, it could be native, could be you know Eastern material or from somewhere, and it could be, yeah, people brewing beer. I mean, soon after settlement. Yeah, hard to, hard to separate out that timing sequence and collections weren't always made of things early early so i want to get into that a little bit about plant distributions and people moving plant species that are rarities now i kind of see this from two different angles i know that you know sometimes uh, people in 
natural heritage offices and stuff can find this very frustrating. You know, we're trying to understand what the native distribution of this plant was, and here we've got some, you know, native plant gardener planting this, you know, in a little butterfly garden. Did they have to do that? But to get more to the core with it, you've done a lot of work with echinacea. There are some significantly rare echinacea yep. species, yep. and I know it must be an issue close to the heart for you in one way or another. How do you feel about things like Echinacea tennessiensis or whatever being out there on the market, planted in native plant gardens? I mean, are we on? Yeah, we're okay. rolling. Okay. Is this, I mean, do you find it confounding, encouraging? Is this part of a yeah, future restoration question. strategy? Or where do, you, where, where do you file that? So for me, and, and Echinacea tennessiensis is a great one to talk about was only known from three or five counties in Tennessee when it was listed. I've, I've had great opportunity to go out with fabulous botanists, and Edwin Bridges, who's a fabulous botanist, took me out there in the 1980s, and, you know, I was like, oh, God, this is just another great echinacea species. The petals curl up. It's distinctly different, and it's believed it's most closely related to echinacea angustifolia in the high plains, so rather big disjunct from central Kansas or central Oklahoma to Tennessee, but limestone, the limestone, you know, I, I love it that people are growing it in gardens and enjoying it. Where I get a little nervous is, and I guess I am a little bit of a purist, in restoration efforts near those sites or related to those sites, I would, I would hate to see uh, hybrids or if there was Echinacea tennesseeensis that was growing in South Carolina that was native, I really wouldn't want to see that brought in because I'd like to see the purity of that gene type kept. So close to that, I would be hesitant. Um, but in the case of that was the only Echinacea tennesseeensis, I was delighted to see that people were growing it. I generally feel good about that. Um, but I just worry some cases where, like, we're going to do a little restoration project on West Campus, and there's a little bit of remnant there, and it's like, are we going to bring in a bunch of seed from elsewhere? Are we going to purchase seed? And if you purchase seed with a lot of Forbes, yeah. you're likely to get Texas material, or, or more likely here, Wisconsin material, because there's so many more nurseries up there that, yes. that where they have an audience, and so we get a lot of Wisconsin seeds yes, down So do here. we. Yeah, there's some great nurseries up there. And there are some the studies, as you know, and one of the issues is flowering time, is, you know, asters from... Uh, asters goldenrods from Wisconsin are not going to flower at the right time for pollinators are expecting yeah. to use those. On the other hand, if you're planting these in someone's yard or whatever, I just appreciate they're learning about these species, and I don't think yard plantings are going to be the saving grace for pollinators or migratory species. Um, so I, I, I like to be encouraging. Um, I'm, not, I'm a purist in some respects and not in others. Yeah. I'm more encouraging in people having experiences with plants, I think, most of the time than I'm a purist. I'm a purist when you have really good native habitats, and I hate to see unknown genotypes plugged into those. I want to ask you more about echinacea. I'll do my best to try to parse it out into many questions instead of just a big bundle. So I guess, first of all, I'm just curious about your history with that plant. Like, how does that, how does Echinacea tell the Kelly Kinshaw story? Uh, I can't tell you my first experiences with it. Um, I didn't grow up with it. It's not on our farm. 
Um, our farm was uh, too sandy and too deep soiled. Um, you know, I grew up with, I grew up in a place that I had, we had no rock. So I didn't realize rock was a common part of the landscape. I assume uh-huh. most parts of the landscape yeah. were just soil. I mean, that's one of the, you know, because we had five to ten feet of topsoil where I grew up, right? <laughs> and then the side slopes might have some clay where there'd been some erosion, and then they're placed in a pasture that were sands, gravels, or closer to stream side or something. Um, so it's not ideal echinacea habitat. But I had an early interest in plants, and it was a beautiful flower. I also have to credit a lot of interaction with Stephen Foster. Steve and I are friends going way back into the 80s and met through bi-regional circles. And, I mean, the Ozarks are another just little jaunt from here. So, you know, you dip down the Ozarks from Kansas for your fix of, like, wild forest, wild Midwestern forest. And so Steve and I have been friends for a long time. And he, he wrote the early little publication, Echinacea Exalted. I found a copy of that somewhere. Oh, so I'm really yeah. excited. Yes. And... I, you know, I remember, you know, talking late in the evenings with Stephen about echinacea and sipping on echinacea tinctures and talking and, you know, so there's that. And then in grad school, uh, my major professor, Phil Wells, who was a fabulous uh, plant ecologist and did a lot of things um, looking at uh, communities on scarped woodlands in the Great Plains. Uh, had a very broad uh, animal-plant interaction focus. But he said to me, you know, for your career, <laughs> you should really think about a genus of plants that you really want to work with. I kind of dismissed that. But then doing dissertation work, I proposed uh, that I might work on just echinacea. And uh, that, my ideas with that were not well-formed, and I moved on to other things. So I've always had it as a, a research interest and... I've always had interest in herbal products, and so I can't even tell you exactly how all this fit together, but when, in the late 90s, when there were concerns about over-harvest, there was opportunities for some funding. So I started getting funded by the Forest Service to do monitoring. We started having concerns in Kansas about over-harvest, which was historically the center of work, and it just kind of expanded from there. Echinacea got really popular all of a sudden, right? I remember even my family, all of a sudden we had Echinacea golden seal tincture. And, you know, we were kind of like on the periphery of getting savvy about health food and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden, you know, sometime in well, teenage years or whatever. Echinacea yeah. appeared on the cover of Time magazine. Oh, wow. So, I mean, that's, plant of that's, the year, right? that's <laughs> making it, right? I mean, if you're on the cover of Time that's magazine. That's making it, yeah. 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 So that shows that that was wow. becoming very mainstream. Yeah. And that was an issue about herbal products, of course. Um, so that that's when it really took off and there was opportunity. And for me, I've always had this interest in culture and botany. So for me, it was something to really delve into. And although I was thinking maybe at first that this was a pretty drastic situation that people were just pillaging and you know yeah. wiping it out, it quickly moved in this thing of I realized that the diggers were people who knew about this and they had a certain idea towards it. And then I'm always always skeptical about what's assumed from the outside, but this assumption that it was being wiped out um, wasn't fitting with realities I was developing early on. As in, it was pretty easy to find echinacea if you're in the high plains and limestone areas. 
So it's like, so why is this still so easy if it's, you know, disappearing? I mean, in contrast to, at least right here, forest species, you know, bloodroot, golden seal, which habitats are much more limited um, here in this part of the, you know, Midwest. Um, I could see how, yes, they were truly big, but echinacea was large, large areas. And, you know, and I'd seen it from... I don't know how far south at that time, but Oklahoma to the Black Hills. I mean, not just a small area, but across a thousand miles of you know Great Plains territory, I'd seen it. So, so I was skeptical that it was truly being. But then it's plausible, you know, that if you had this much demand and start looking yeah. at the numbers. So it's by my curiosity, and and then I've always had interest in learning from traditional people. And then traditional people is not just Native Americans. There's, you know, this chapter in the book now. It's a 125-year history in Kansas of harvest of echinacea. So you have people who have been traditionally harvesting echinacea in families for over 100 years. So I'd say there's cultural knowledge there that's important. And then we talked to them. They were telling us early on, no, we, we don't wipe it out. It, it comes back. You can't, you, where we harvest it, it just keeps coming back. And I was a little skeptical. I thought it was coming back from seeds, that they weren't getting all of it. And quickly you realize, well, people don't harvest tiny plants. There's no economic value in that. So maybe because they were pretty clear, you, well, you can't just harvest every year. You harvest it and you come back three or more years later. And I thought, well, then some's going to seed. They're missing some and it's going to seed. And then, no, they tell me, no, it re-sprouts. Skeptical on that, but then you go out with them. If you go out with the people and look at their traditional practices, and they're pulling up roots and showing you, oh, it was cut off there last time it was dug, yeah. and you can see from that point up, it's a tiny little shoot, and then that cut zone, it's a big root down below. So, okay. And then you see that multiple times, and you go, something's going on here. This is re sprouting, at least some of the time. So, what are some of the medicinal uses for which echinacea became popular in you know the 90s, plus or minus, compared to what their uh, traditional uses were ethnographically? And also, if you want to share, like, do you use the plant yourself, and how would you use it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm a believer. You know, <laughs> I make my own tincture. Nice. I still yeah. like getting my own root. Yeah. Um, it's not for everyone, and it, it doesn't seem to work for everyone, so it's not like I'm the biggest promoter, you know. Um, and it doesn't, I don't think it's a cure, but it definitely reduces symptoms and, you know, long, the length of time of getting a cold or fever or flu. I rarely get sick, so I mean, this may be another year I just don't get sick at all. I mean, so, can't do better than that. So, um, so there's that, and of course, I'm using it, and the majority uses for this colds and flu and general sickness. So it's considered like an immune booster or yeah. modulator. So, yeah, it's a little broader, answer. right? Yeah, a little broader. Um, but for Native folks, historically, I mean, it was the cure-all. So it was used for all sorts of things. But in contrast, of course, no one made tincture. True. And yeah. a lot of it was just topically. It was used topically a lot. Crushed, chewed on, or pounded, and applied to bruises and problems. And then the major use, which we don't use it for today, is snake bite. And that's where it was first popularized, was a snake bite remedy on the plains. 
And I mean, uh, Meyer, who had his blood purifier product, uh, went to the Lloyd Brothers Pharmacy, which is the major firm dispensing uh, botanical drugs, literally, to doctors. Uh, that he wrote them and said, this stuff you should really look at, it really works. In fact, I'd be glad to come out from where I live in Pawnee City, Nebraska, and in front of you, be bitten repeatedly by rattlesnakes and take echinacea to cure it. He yeah. offered to do that. They didn't take him up on that, they thought it was a little over the top. Uh -huh. That's very ethical of them. Yeah, they could have sold tickets. Yeah, <laughs> sounds more like faith healer and snake bites, but um, I think there is something there, and it's not been studied, and it should be. Not that it's going to cure all snake bite, right. but if you get bit by a rattlesnake or copperhead, it's kind of bad news. I mean, still about the best treatment is nothing. <laughs> I mean, hope, that's, hope for the best. Yeah, they'll give you antibiotics, and you don't want to get infection or something. Yeah. Hope for the best. There is a horse serum they'll give you, and many people react to that. In fact, um, Henry Fitch, who was the uh, who taught uh, all the biology plant—I mean, plant animal herp classes at KU—has a 50-year record of snakes at our natural history reservation, the field station here at the university. He was bit by both copperhead and rattlesnakes, and his—he always collected snake data, and. He also took the horse serum. He said it was better just to take the bite, that the horse serum did not help that much. <laughs> so we don't have a good cure. Yeah. And like, why aren't we looking at some of these things? And there's some other plants that, have, that were used for snake bite. Rattlesnake master, I mentioned. But echinacea in particular, because in both the, the early medical literature, meaning 100 years ago, Native American literature, it had this broader array of things related to blood and bites. Um, and the chemistry indicates there's stuff going on there. That, so it wasn't just that, oh, it boosted your uh, white blood cell count, so you, know, you could cope with that. There's something else going on there that should be looked at. Yeah, do you have any hints into what constituents in echinacea might be related to that, or even to the sort of more common immune well, yeah, modulating so the other immune activity. Stuff, yeah, I love it. The other immune stuff, and we do know that there's both a large polysaccharide, and the chemistry is so confusing, it's not been identified. But this large polysaccharide, does there's immune response to that. And if you take the plant material and you remove all of the carbohydrate, all the polysaccharides, the remaining yeah. portion, there's an immune response to that also. And that's uh, tied up in another group of compounds, of which at least one is, is active. The chemistry on that part's pretty good. It's still complex, a little bit mysterious, so it's not, it's not figured out. But there is absolutely good proof that there's active compounds that people are responding to. Tell me more about the native medicinal plant research program here <laughs> and uh, maybe a little bit about the work that you're doing looking at the chemistry of different plant species. So I'm not a chemist but I've been blessed in working with quite a few chemists. Nice. Um, the big project was uh, established this native medicinal plant research program in which uh, Barbara Timmerman who's uh, in the medicinal chemistry department and a distinguished faculty at the university um, was contacted that there was potentially state money for setting up a research arm to do this. 
And so we were on a parallel track with folks at Kansas State University who were going to get funds. So both state universities get funded. They got funded for GMO wheat, which I was not excited about, um, and which hasn't taken off. There's still not GMO wheat. And we got funded for our project. So we geared up and had this fabulous opportunity to, based on um, the ethnobotany data I'd collected across the Great Plains, look at a series, uh, actually there's over 200 species of prairie plants for chemistry that could be used for anti-cancer, antioxidants, and wound healing. And the idea was that um, active plants or plants have a history of use by Native Americans, likely that chemistry would overlap with other chemistry. Because there's not a history of like uh, anti-cancer plants. Native Americans uh, were healthy and um, maybe didn't have as much cancer, but they also didn't conceive of cancer. Uh, lung cancer would have been a lung problem, or skin cancer would relate to the part of the body it was on. Um, you know, we frame cancer as cells out of control, and even just saying that, that's a Western perspective of science. I mean, natives didn't talk about cells. I mean, um, so there's not a lot of, of history of, of anti-cancer plants, but you have all these active plants. So we looked at all these active plants and did broad screens, and that led us to actually making really good progress with these wild tomatillos and the anti-cancer property of those new compounds um, and really significant tumor reduction in rats and in yeah. some human cells. And that was all promising but preliminary. And then we had a major change in state government with uh, Governor Brownback coming into office and deciding that we don't want to fund university work. <laughs> we want to fund business, industry. And we don't like this, the bioscience authority, which is what our funding was under, gutted it. So it was traumatic. Our funding got caught off in the middle of the project. Wow. And what was a huge five-year, $5 million project ended up being, uh, with their funding, a three-year, $2.5 million project. I had to lay people off. University, to their credit, did actually provide some additional funds for us to wrap up some things and finish nice. some things. And we've continued to do a little work, but things have scaled down greatly. I've had additional projects since then that have fed into that work, and we have this fabulous garden, which I want to get you out to. Um, not this trip, another trip. And a second garden at the School of Pharmacy, which is uh, at Well, give me a court. teaser. Tell me about the gardens, you know, <laughs> just in case I'm not out for another couple months or year or two. Well, the, the gardens are um, both the research areas, like we are growing some plants now for herbal product company to get them quantities for authentication, and we have an educational wing. So both of those gardens have that educational piece, and we have native plants that have been used and uh, listed in the National Formulary or the U.S. Pharmacopeia. We've tried to focus on those, and all those plants have signs and signage. And I'm delighted to have those at the School of Pharmacy, because the history of the School of Pharmacy is using those plants. So they're right outside the building, adjacent to the food court seating. So the students cool. get, to, get to see those. And our research garden, which is bigger, is amenable for us growing things in quantity or whatever scale we need. Most of it's now pretty small scale. 
but we also involve students in that work. And then based on that garden, there's all these other spin-off things that happen. I mean, there's a, a student community garden that's going gangbusters, and since we're set up, we share water and tools with them. Just last year, uh, there's a student bee group, and it's just like hotcakes, and they're growing, I mean, they're honeybees. Um, I just found out two weeks ago, they now have 200 members who signed up. Everybody's into oh, wow. pollinators. And that group is doing more public education than we were doing because they went out to six or eight grade schools and did little programs and shared about bees to all these kids. And I heard, I don't know if this is true, this is 12th hand, but I heard on a podcast, I think it was actually with Paul Stamets, that he said that saving the bees is the biggest like bridge issue between you know left and right or Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, however he said it, in the country. And I mean, that brought a tear to my eyes. Yeah. Like it better F and B, but that's yeah. just just great. There's hope with that. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that has even more traction than the native plant interest thing. Yeah. Is driving things in ways that uh, I I couldn't have foreseen. Yeah. I mean it's like we were kind of like, yeah, it'd be, it'd be good to have honeybees out there, you know? I mean, we weren't, like, driving it, yeah. and, and these students were excited about it. It's like, we'll be fine, and, you know? And then it creates discussion about, okay, we got these honeybees, but what about the native bees, and there's our competition? And so now we have some other people going to look at this a little bit. And there's some published data on this that, for the most part, they're not. Honeybees don't, they're not attack bees, so they're not forcefully, you know, driving these other bees out. And they mainly are foraging on different things for most of the time. But so there's these spinoffs that happen, and there's some other research that's going on out there. So all these things kind of build on things. And I find that with students that they no longer have much experience with plants at all when they come, at least to a university. We're not an ag school, so they're not coming here for horticulture. We don't get a lot of farm kids haven't historically, but even less now. I mean, there's there's no farm kids. I mean, there's very few farms. I think we're down to 50,000 farms in Kansas. What you think about it, I mean, we're a population of 3 million people in this state, which isn't well populated, and only have 50,000 farms. I mean, and most of those yeah. are run by old folks. Yeah. Average age of farmers is like approaching 60. Yeah. Something like that. Um, so there's not an experience with this. And students, and especially, I'm in environmental studies, so I get a selective group. But our students, and many students at the university, are craving for nature experiences. They seem to be more comfortable with the cultivated environment than just the wild. So like they're not interested, let's say, in backpacking or wilderness adventure as much. They're not disinterested in that, but most of them aren't pursuing that. They're very interested in food production. They're very interested in local food. They're very interested in uh, well, pollinators. All those things are just very, very, very interested in compost, very interested in carbon, right? All these things are relating to more of a semi-wild yeah. plant experience. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm delighted to encourage that in any way I can, you know. I wasn't intending you to to ask you about that, but I find that interesting. I just want to try to tease that out for another second. Do you think that because people didn't grow up with a rural experience, it's just 
one step farther, I believe, to go into the sort of full wilderness immersion. But given a urban or suburban upbringing, that sort of more like bringing nature into their context or their culture is is comfortable for them. I mean, I grew up a city kid also, so I can kind of relate yeah, to this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I do a lot of field work in wild areas yeah. and so on, and I'm still cognizant of the part of me that you know, my first 20 or so years, like I was in the city mm-hmm. and this is different in mm-hmm. some way for me. Well, we're all much more, what do you to use, civilized. So I grew up on the farm yeah. and in a small town. I never went camping. My parents didn't camp. You know, I didn't have yeah. any of that, right? Yeah. So I mean, unless you truly grew up in the wilds, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that. It does seem though that people are able, and you're a good example of that, but not alone can be a fairly urban-suburban experience and move into a pretty wild and plant-focused realm easily. I mean, so that knowledge can be gained. I think you, you probably reflect on this too. But a lot of it just comes to immersion and spending time. I mean, if you really want to get to know plants, yeah. you just need to spend time with them. Yes. And it doesn't have to be in the pristine environment. Um, but you need to spend time because it's that accumulation of observation I mean, I learned so much by a new project with a new plant or a new place, especially if I have to spend time there. And I love field work. That's kind of what I live for. But I'd say even especially plot work. You know, if you have to get down your hands and knees and just have, you know, maybe you have to spend that much time because it's that difficult, you've learned so much. I feel like for me, it really activates what I would think of sort of my animal senses, you know, not just using my eyes and not just using yes. my taxonomic yes. intellect, yes. but I'm tasting things and smelling things. I'm touching things to feel, yes. you yes. know, what the surface of the plant feels like. And, you know, I don't want to overstate my case, but I feel like that's very ele- elemental for me. Yeah, I think it is elemental. I think, in, in fact, that's what students have interest in this realm. I think there's been some of that cross-exposure, that they've had some experience with houseplants or a food or an ant who's got a garden or a distant relative who's got a farm, and they're experiencing some of those things. And most all people seem to delight, you know, in those nature experiences. And I think we're much more acutely aware of that now um, because nature's at risk in many, many ways. So about ten more minutes. I want to try to fit two more questions in here. So be brief on this next one. This next one's a bit of a tangent anyway. But when I majored in anthropology, there was a lot of uh, the you know the thing that was in there was a lot of concern about the dominant culture, you know, um, imposing its viewpoint of the world and its its set of norms or needs on all these other cultures that anthropology was, you know, supposedly studying. And there was a lot of concern about appropriation. Um, There was a lot of concern about just, you know, how did this sort of continue the whole colonial viewpoint or experience, even if we all thought that as anthropologists we were doing this great sort of salvage work or whatever. And I guess I'm curious if there's any ways in which that has played out in your life as a mm-hmm. practitioner, and also how do you guide your students in that regard? As a huge topic. Well, we're definitely products of our culture and our history, and you can't deny that. And um, 
you can't help but be in situations that are um, unfair, advantaged, privileged. You just are. So you, main thing, you just got. You have to be conscious. And then I think you have to look for opportunities to. And I, I like using this word now. Rematriate information. <laughs> yeah, cool. Repatriate uh, things that you can. And there's many ways of doing that. Um, it doesn't always mean for me that I'm working with native people or tribal people on everything. Um, but where I can, I want to and want to try to return things. I do feel that I provide a service in just publishing and in, in doing that consciously. Um, but it really feels that you want to get more contact, that you really, and I try to, I try to talk to students who work with me saying that you need to make those efforts to make those contacts with the people you're working with, um, to empower them, to, to share as much information as you can, to make things equal as much as we can. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know, that you should back away from things. I mean, I have a strong interest in native plants and uses, which took me to the history of those uses, which made me want to work with native folks and learn about their ways. I don't feel bad about that. I'm not going to say those were my family's ways. I'd be glad to talk about my family, too, but the history is not as deep here. Um, I'd like to delve into the European side of that. Um, which I think also was maybe not all that dissimilar if you go far enough back yeah. in the peasant world, right? I'm sure there was plum use in my family back oh, in yeah. Europe. I they got that good plum brandy. Yeah, <laughs> all of that. Um, so anyway, I, I just think there's just openness and always examine, examine what one's doing, what one's motives are, and, and yet really work for a larger, larger vision. If I get back out here to see the prairie in bloom, we can pick some of those threads back up because I'd love to talk more yes. about that and yes. also have some curiosity about, you know, what our European sort of cultural attachment to plants were and just all the schisms and fracturing that had there that led us to this very alienated place. So, yeah. you know what? I had another question. It seems really fair to wrap up now with many thanks for having me here and agreeing to do this talk. I really enjoyed being able to ask you these things, and uh, we'll look forward to an opportunity to ask you some more things at some point. Well, let's do that. And, and But important to me is to get you out on a prairie, so that's, that's an that agenda item. you gotta, you got to stop by. It was a short visit. Um, both the university has a prairie that's really nice, yeah. um, just north of town, eight miles, and my favorite prairie is just southeast of town, five miles, just a little quick jaunt out to either. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to get you out it's there. It's only a two-day drive to get here. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That's not very far. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much. This yeah. is a blast. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs>